The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Book One, The Coming of the Martians. Chapter 10, In the Storm. Hello and thank you for joining Public Domain Playhouse for yet another chapter of the timeless classic, the trope-breaking H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. What else would we expect from the same author who brought us such titles as The Invisible Man and The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Time Machine? Wells was truly a giant in his time, so much so he actually remains a giant to this day. People are still studying him, and look at me, I'm sitting here spending all these hours trying to bring War of the Worlds to life in the period in which it was written, which is basically around the, the turn of the 20th century. So the very late 1800s, the early 1900s. So think about what was going on in history at the time. The Industrial Revolution was just kicking off. Petroleum was just becoming a thing. Electricity was just around the corner. It was an exciting time, and Wells was a visionary, which is one of the reasons why he's still held in such regard to this day, because he was actually able to take a look into the future. So much so that he predicted all kinds of stuff. We'll get to that here in a minute. My name is Bart. Thank you again for joining me for Chapter 10, In the Storm. In the vein of trying to be a cross between a podcast and an ebook and a radio teleplay, basically an exciting ebook, we like to take a look at the history of Wells. Wells is the author, Wells is the man. We've looked at Wells the child, Wells the teacher, Wells the writer, and now he became world renowned. And if you recall last time, if you were with us for chapter nine, The Fighting Begins. You recall that we actually took a look at the end of Wells' life, where he took a trip to Russia and thought that he could actually topple socialism under Stalin simply through logic and debate, but it didn't work. He became a bit pessimistic towards the end, this is true. He actually lived a nice long life, and towards the end, it started to become clear that his ideas of a utopian society were never going to come true. We also took a look at his final years and how he died, but today we're starting to take a look at why he's such an icon in literature. One of the reasons that Wells is so renowned was he was considered a futurist. He is still considered a futurist, but by today's standards, it's amazing what he got right. Wells foresaw the advent of aircraft and tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, satellite television, and something resembling the World Wide Web, World Brain. Wells's vision of the future remained unsurpassed, according to John Higgs, who was an author of Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century. He states that in the late 19th century, Wells saw the coming century closer, more clearly than anyone else. He anticipated wars in the air, the sexual revolution, motorized transport causing the growth of suburbs, and a proto-Wikipedia that he called World Brain. Wells foresaw the world wars coming, created by a federalized Europe. 
Britain, he thought, would not fit comfortably into this new Europe and would identify more closely with the United States and other English-speaking countries, which indeed became true. In Wells's novel The World Set Free, he imagined an atomic bomb of terrifying power that would be dropped from aeroplanes. This was an extraordinary amount of insight for a man and an author writing in 1913, and it made a deep impression on people such as Winston Churchill. In a review of The Time Machine for The New Yorker magazine, an author by the name of Brad Lighthouser writes, At the base of Wells's great vision exploit is his rational, ultimately scientific attempt to tease out the potential future consequences of the present condition, not as they might arise in a few years or even decades, but millennia hence, epochs hence. He is the world literature's great extrapolator. Like no other fiction writer before him, he embraced deep time. Wells's political views were equally as interesting as the man himself, part of what made him who he was, a socialist and a member of the Fabian Society. Winston Churchill was an avid reader of Wells's books, and after they met in 1902, he even kept in touch with Wells until he died in 1946. As a junior minister, Winston Churchill borrowed lines from Wells for one of his most famous early landmark speeches in 1906, and as prime minister, the phrase, the gathering storm, used by Churchill to describe the rise of Nazi Germany, had been written by Wells in The War of the Worlds, which depicts an attack on Britain by Martians. Wells' extensive writings on equality of human beings and human rights, most notably his most influential work, The Rights of Man, published in 1940, laid the groundwork for the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the United Nations shortly after his death. Wells's efforts regarding the League of Nations, on which he collaborated on the project with Leonard Wolfe, with the booklets The Idea of a League of Nations, Pray Legomania to the Study of World Organization, and The Way of the League of Nations, became a disappointment for Wells, as the organization turned out ultimately to be weak and unable to prevent the Second World War, which as well occurred towards the end of Wells's life, and only increased his pessimistic side of his nature. In Wells's last book, The Mind at the End of Its Tether, published in 1945, he considered the idea that humanity being replaced by another species might not be a bad idea. He referred to an era between the two world wars as the Age of Frustration. As far as Wells's religious views go, his views on God and religion changed over the course of his lifetime. Early in life, he distanced himself from Christianity and later from theism, and finally, late in life, he essentially was an atheist. Martin Gardner succinctly summarizes this progression by saying, The younger Wells did not object to using the word God, provided it did not imply anything resembling human personality. In his middle years, Wells went through a phase of defending the concept of a finite god, similar to the god of such process theologians as Samuel Alexander, Edgar Breitman, and Charles Hearthstone. He even wrote a book about it called God the Invisible King. Later, Wells decided he was really an atheist. 
In God the Invisible King, published in 1917, Wells wrote that his idea of God did not draw upon the traditional religions of the world. This book sets out as forcibly and exactly as possible the religious belief of the writer, which is a profound belief in a personal and intimate God. Putting the leading idea of this book very roughly, these two antagonistic typical conceptions of God may be best contrasted by speaking of them as God as nature or the creator and of the other as God as Christ or the redeemer. One is the great outward God, the other is the inmost God. The first idea was perhaps developed most highly and completely in the God of Spinoza. It is a conception of God tending to pantheism, to an idea of a comprehensive God as ruling with justice rather than affection, to the conception of aloofness and awe-striking worshipfulness. The second idea, which is contradictory to this idea of an absolute God, is the God of the human heart. The writer suggested that the great outline of the theological struggles of that phase of civilization and world unity which produced Christianity was a persistent but unsuccessful attempt to get these two different ideas of God into one focus. Later in that same work, Wells aligns himself with a renaissance or modern religion neither atheist, nor Buddhist, nor Mohammedan, nor Christian, that he has found growing up in himself. Of Christianity, Wells said, It is now not true for me. Every believing Christian is, I am sure, my spiritual brother. But if systematically I called myself a Christian, I feel that to most men I should imply too much and so tell a lie. Of the other world religions, he writes, all these religions are true for me, as Canterbury Cathedral is a true thing, and as a Swiss chalet is a true thing. There they are, and they have served a purpose. They have worked, only they are not true for me to live in them. They do not work for me. In Wells's The Fate of Homo Sapiens, published in 1939, he criticized almost all world religions and philosophies, stating, There is no creed, no way of living left in the world at all, that really meets the needs of the time. When we come to look at them coolly and dispassionately, all the main religions, patriotic, moral, and customary systems in which human beings are sheltered today appear to be in a state of jostling and mutually destructive movement, like the houses and palaces, other buildings of some vast, sprawling city overtaken by a landslide. Wells' opposition to organized religion reached a fever pitch in 1943 with the publication of his book Crux Ansata, subtitled An Indictment of the Roman Catholic Church. Once again, Wells seemed to be ahead of his time. So that's actually kind of an interesting point of view about Wells, a passionate socialist who believes in utopian ideals, but ultimately crushed under the weight of real life and becomes a pessimist towards the end. Next time, we'll take a look at Wells' literary influence on some of his contemporaries and some of the famous authors who came after him, because Wells was the first. He was the original who created time machine stories, 
War of the Worlds, interspecies, intergalactic invasion stories, science god and wild stories like The Invisible Man and The Island of Dr. Moreau, and countless other items including nonfiction works. But for tonight, we're going to take a look at chapter 10, so to get caught up, why don't we take a quick look at chapter 9 and do a quick recap with the notes that I get from my friends at Schmoop. Schmoop.com. S-H-M-O-O-P. So if you were with us last time, you remember in chapter 9, the fighting begins, that it started off as a most usual Saturday morning. As a matter of fact, that's what the narrator said. It was a most unexceptional morning. The narrator talked to the milkman and his neighbor next door, and everyone's pretty much sure that the military's going to have this whole thing under control. Everything does seem very ordinary, especially with the little touches that Wells adds, like a neighbor giving the narrator a handful of strawberries from his garden. The narrator ends up chatting with a bunch of sappers, who are basically like soldier engineers, who generally agree with the neighbor and the milkman. They've got the situation under control. The sappers all have a different theory about how to kill the Martians and begin arguing amongst themselves. The narrator tries to get more information on the situation, but the newspapers only have old news, and they're not entirely accurate news stories as well. Plus, none of the soldiers have actually seen the Martians, he's the only one that has, so they end up peppering him with questions. The military prepares to confront the Martians and go head-to-head with them, and the narrator's schoolboy dreams of heroic war are awoken by all this. He says, My imagination became belligerent and defeated the invaders in a dozen striking ways. Then, while the narrator is having tea with his wife, some nearby towers catch on fire and the narrator's chimney is destroyed by a heat ray. The narrator quickly decides that rather than heroically defeat the Martians, he should probably just go ahead and run away. The narrator decides to take he and his wife to Leatherhead, where he has family. He runs over to a pub called the Spotted Dog in order to hire the landlord's horse and cart. There's a little bit of a struggle back and forth. He ends up giving twice as much money as the person who's standing there trying to rent it. He tells him that he has an animal that's getting ready to go into birth, I believe it was. So he ends up getting a cart as well in which he can transport his wife. As he runs back to his house, the narrator runs into a passing soldier who says something about the Martians crawling out in a thing like a dish cover. And then the narrator is off because apparently he does not like dish covers. That's a quick recap of chapter nine. The fighting begins. As you recall, we don't actually see the fighting begin, just kind of the tangential outskirts of the fighting as the man's chimney is blown apart. I had a lot of fun putting that scene together. I hope you enjoy all the sound effects. I've had people tell me that they don't think that literature actually lends itself to performance like this necessarily, with sound effects and music and things like that. But I have a feeling that they're probably considering that what I'm doing is imposing its way into the story, but the way that I like to think about it in Public Domain Playhouse is actually created to make these things come even more alive and to put them in a context that people today can actually understand and appreciate. 
Sometimes the language is a little stilted, it's a little dated information, even though these are classic works of fiction that remain true to the day a hundred years later or more. And so now it's time for chapter 10 of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, In the Storm. But let's hand it over to our narrator author to take over the story from here. <clears throat> Chapter 10 In the Storm Leatherhead is about 12 miles from Mayberry Hill. The scent of hay was in the air through the lush meadows beyond Pierford, and the hedges on either side were sweet and gay with multitudes of dog roses. The heavy firing that had broken out while we were driving down Mayberry Hill ceased as abruptly as it began, leaving the evening very peaceful and still. We got to Leatherhead without misadventure about nine o'clock, and the horse had an hour's rest while I took supper with my cousins and commended my wife to their care. My wife was curiously silent throughout the drive and seemed depressed with forebodings of evil. I talked to her reassuringly, pointing out that the Martians were tied to the pit by sheer heaviness and at the utmost could but crawl a little out of it. But she answered only in monosyllables. Had it not been for my promise to the innkeeper, she would, I think, have urged me to stay in Leatherhead that night. Would that I had. Her face, I remember, was very white as we parted. For my own part, I had been feverishly excited all day. Something very like the war fever that occasionally runs through a civilized community had got into my blood, and in my heart, I was not so very sorry that I had to return to Mayberry that night. I was even afraid that that last fusillade I had heard might mean the extermination of our invaders from Mars. I can best express my state of mind by saying that I wanted to be in at the death. It was nearly eleven when I started to return. The night was unexpectedly dark. To me, walking out of the lighted passage of my cousin's house, it seemed indeed black, and it was as hot and close as the day. Overhead, the clouds were driving fast, albeit not a breath stirred the shrubs about us. My cousin's man lit both lamps. Happily, I knew the road intimately. My wife stood in the light of the doorway and watched me until I jumped up into the dog cart. Then abruptly, she turned and went in, leaving my cousins side by side, wishing me good hap. I was a little depressed at first with the contagion of my wife's fears, but very soon my thoughts reverted to the Martians. At that time, I was absolutely in the dark as to the course of the evening's fighting. I did not even know the circumstances that had precipitated the conflict. As I came through Occam, for that was the way I returned and not through Send and Old Woking, I saw along the western horizon a blood-red glow, which, as I drew nearer, crept slowly up the sky. The driving clouds of the gathering thunderstorm mingled there with masses of black and red smoke. Ripley Street was deserted, 
and except for a lighted window or so, the village showed not a sign of life. But I narrowly escaped an accident at the corner of the road to Pyreford, where a knot of people stood with their backs to me. They said nothing to me as I passed. I do not know what they knew of the things happening beyond the hill. Nor do I know if the silent houses I passed on my way were sleeping securely, or deserted and empty, or harassed, and watching against the terror of the night. From Ripley until I came through Pierford, I was in the Valley of the Way, and the red glare was hidden from me. As I descended the little hill beyond Pierford Church, the glare came into view again, and the trees about me shivered with the first intimation of the storm that was upon me. Then I heard midnight peeling out from Pierford churches behind me. And then came the silhouette of Mayberry Hill, with its treetops and roofs black and sharp against the red. Even as I beheld this, a lurid green glare lit the road about me and showed the distant woods towards Addlestone. I felt a tug at the reins. I saw that the driving clouds had been pierced, as it were, by a thread of green fire. Suddenly, lighting their confusion and falling into the field to my left, it was the third falling star. Close on its apparition, and blindingly violet by contrast, danced out the first lightning of the gathering storm and the thunder burst like a rocket overhead. The horse took the bit between his teeth and bolted. A moderate incline runs towards the foot of Mayberry Hill, and down this we clattered. Once the lightning had begun, it was on in as rapid a succession of flashes as I had ever seen. The thunderclaps, treading one on the heels of another, and with a strange, crackling accompaniment, sounded more like the working of a gigantic electric machine than the usual detonating reverberations. The flickering light was blinding and confusing, and a thin hail smote gustily at my face as I drove down the slope. At first I regarded little but the road before me, and then abruptly my attention was arrested by something that was moving rapidly down the opposite slope of Mayberry Hill. At first, I took it for the wet roof of the house, but one flash followed another, showed it to be in swift, rolling movement. It was an elusive vision, a moment of bewildering darkness, and then, in a flash like daylight, the red masses of the orphanage near the crest of the hill, the green tops of the pine trees, and this problematical object came out clear and sharp and bright. In this thing I saw, how can I describe it? A monstrous tripod, higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine, glittering metal, striding now across the heather, articulate ropes of steel dangling from it, and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly, heeling over one way with two feet in the air, 
to vanish and reappear almost instantly as it seemed, with the next flash a hundred yards nearer. Can you imagine a milking stool tilted and bowled violently along the ground? That was the impression those instant flashes gave me. But instead of a milking stool, imagine it a great body of machinery on a tripod stand. Then suddenly the trees and the pine wood ahead of me were parted, as brittle reeds are parted by a man thrusting through them. They were snapped off and driven headlong. And a second huge tripod appeared, rushing as it seemed headlong towards me. galloping hard to meet it. At the sight of the second monster, my nerve went all together. Not stopping to look again, I wrenched the horse's head hard round to the right, and in another moment, the dog cart had heeled over upon the horse. The shaft smashed noisily, and I was flung sideways and fell heavily into a shallow pool of water. I crawled out almost immediately and crouched, my feet still in the water, under a clump of furs. The horse lay motionless. His neck was broken, poor brute. And by the lightning flashes I saw the black bulk of the overturned dog cart and the silhouette of the wheel still spinning slowly. In another moment, the colossal mechanism went striding by me and passed uphill towards Pierford. Seen nearer, the thing was incredibly strange, for it was no mere insensate machine driving on its way. Machine it was, with a ringing metallic pace, and long, flexible, glittering tentacles, one of which gripped a young pine tree, swinging and rattling about its strange body. It picked its road as it went striding along, and the brazen hood that surmounted it moved to and fro with the inevitable suggestion of a head looking about. Behind the main body was a huge mass of white metal, like a gigantic fisherman's basket, and puffs of green smoke squirted out from the joints of the limbs as the monster swept by me. And in an instant, it was gone. So much I saw then, all vaguely for the flickering of the lightning and blinding headlights and dense black shadows. As it passed, it set up an exultant, deafening howl that drowned the thunder.
stooping over something in the field. I have no doubt this thing in the field was the third of the ten cylinders they had fired at us from Mars. For some minutes I lay there in the rain and darkness watching. By the intermittent light, these monstrous beings of metal moved about in the distance over the hedge tops. A thin hail was now beginning, and as it came and went, their figures grew misty and then flashed into the clearness again. Now and then came a gap in the lightning, and the night swallowed them up. I was soaked with hail above and puddle water below. It was some time before my blank astonishment would let me struggle up the bank to a drier position, or think at all of my imminent peril. Not far from me was a little one-roomed squatter's hut of wood, surrounded by a patch of potato garden. I struggled to my feet at last, and, crouching and making use of every chance of cover, I made run for this. I hammered at the door, but I could not make the people hear, if there were any people inside. And after a time I desisted, and, availing myself of a ditch for the greater part of the way, succeeded in crawling, unobserved by these monstrous machines, into the pine woods towards Mayberry. Under cover of this I pushed on, wet and shivering now towards my own house. I walked among the trees, trying to find the footpath. It was very dark indeed in the wood, for the lightning was now becoming infrequent, and the hail, which was pouring down in a torrent, fell in columns through the gaps in the heavy foliage. If I had fully realized the meaning of all the things I had seen, I should have immediately worked my way round through Byfleet to Street Copham, and so gone back to rejoin my wife at Leatherhead. But that night, the strangeness of things about me and my physical wretchedness prevented me, for I was bruised, weary, wet to the skin, deafened and blinded by the storm. I had a vague idea of going on to my own house, and that was as much motive as I had. I staggered through the trees, fell into a ditch and bruised my knees against a plank, and finally splashed out into the lane that ran down from the college arms. I say splashed, for the storm water was creeping the sand down the hill in a muddy torrent. There in the darkness, a man blundered into me and sent me reeling back. He gave a cry of terror, sprang sideways, and rushed on before I could gather my wits sufficiently to speak to him. So heavy was the stress of the storm just at this place that I had the hardest task to win my way up the hill. I went close up to the fence on the left and worked my way along its palings. Near the top, I stumbled upon something soft and, by a flash of lightning, saw between my feet a heap of black broadcloth and a pair of boots. Before I could distinguish clearly how the man lay, the flicker of light had passed. 
I stood over him, waiting for the next flash. When it came, I saw that he was a sturdy man, cheaply but not shabbily dressed. His head was bent under his body, and he lay crumpled up close to the fence, as though he had been flung violently against it. natural to one who had never before touched a dead body, I stooped and turned him over to feel for his heart. He was quite dead. Apparently his neck had been broken. The lightning flashed for a third time, and his face leapt upon me. I sprang to my feet. It was the landlord of the spotted dog whose conveyance I had taken. I stepped over him gingerly and pushed on up the hill. I made my way by the police station and the college arms towards my own house. Nothing was burning on the hillside, though from the common there still came a red glare and a rolling tumult of ruddy smoke beating up against the drenching hail. So far as I could see by the flashes, the houses about me were mostly uninjured. By the college arms, a dark heap lay in the road. Down the road towards Mayberry Bridge, there were voices and the sound of feet, but I had not the courage to shout or to go to them. I let myself in with my latch key, closed, locked, and bolted the door, staggered to the foot of the staircase, and sat down. My imagination was full of those striding, metallic monsters and of the dead body smashed against the fence. I crouched at the foot of the staircase with my back to the wall, shivering violently. And there you have it. That's it for chapter 10 in the storm. Apparently, Wells was equating what would happen if Martians came down and wreaked terror on the general population of 1914-1920 England. He made it seem with all the smoke and lightning and violence going on that it would be like a storm. And that's indeed where our narrator was in the storm. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm Bart, your narrator and guide for the classics here at Public Domain Playhouse, where we bring you the works of antiquity today. And as always, we'll see you in the next chapter. Thank you for joining us.